Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sisodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And this week, we have a prime practitioner in the art of conscious capitalism, Jerry Anderson. He is the executive chairman of DTE Energy. He joined DTE in 1993 and said, various senior level roles there until being named president in 2004, CEO in 2010, and chairman in 2011. He is considered the architect and leader of the company's strategy to focus on cost operational excellence in the utility business and develop its non-regulated businesses. In addition, he's focused on building, and this is going to be the heart of what we talk about today, a highly engaged culture and on deeply connecting DTE energy to the communities it serves, enabling it to act as a force for good. Jerry, welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about the journey that you went on at DTE that got you to that place of being able to say, I want us to be able to be a force for good in the communities in which we serve. Well, you know, that journey for me really started about 15 years ago now. It was uh, shortly after I was named president. And uh, it was the first time that I really felt responsible for the whole. Uh, I'd always been a, a business unit leader. And when I looked around at the whole, uh, it was not good. Um, we, we were poor to mediocre at pretty much everything we did, uh, ranging from our costs, which were uncompetitive, our safety, which was routinely bottom of the industry, our customer satisfaction, which routinely showed up bottom one or two in the Midwest. And our total shareholder returns were always fourth quartile. We never paid out an incentive plan because our returns were poor. But you know, for me, what really began to become conspicuous was the fact that our employee engagement was routinely bottom 20%. And our union engagement was often bottom 10%. And uh, it was really reflection and what's the root cause of all of this that put me on my journey? And it, I, I eventually concluded 15 years ago in 2007, the root cause is a deeply broken culture. And I need to fix that. I didn't know how to do it, to be honest. And for me, I, I had the good fortune of that realization intersecting with the financial crisis, uh, of the Great Recession of 2008. And that mix kind of put me on my journey. And when you sat there and said, okay, I've got a, I've got a fix a culture. I mean, what goes through your head at that moment other than this seems like an overwhelming task? How did you start to break it into bite-sized pieces where you could start to make sense of it to yourself, let alone to others? Well, that was the interesting thing that I said to my people. Um, the root of this is a deeply broken culture, but I, as a leader, 
didn't really know what that meant. I had never dealt with culture the way I dealt with strategy, finance, operations, which I understood and had spent years learning how to tear apart. I had never learned to sort of break apart a culture and think about it deeply and change it. And so I began to go off to experts uh, in, in various settings. And what I found was they weren't very helpful. Uh, they would describe <laughs> culture in these broad terms. And I would listen to them and, and think, I have no idea really what to do with that. And I learned by doing. And I learned by doing because in late 2008, uh, the world economy came to a screeching halt. And the stilts came out from under it. And strangely, the very epicenter of all of that was my headquarter city, Detroit, Michigan. The auto industry was imploding. People were being laid off everywhere. Our city was going bankrupt. Uh, our steel mills were shutting down. And there was fear everywhere. And Detroit was viewed as a broken place and sort of a uh, emblematic of, of what was wrong. Yeah. And company began to be talked about as the junk bond utility. And it was that then that um, served up a decision for me that I, that I would say was the defining decision of my career. And it, and it was that decision which launched me on the real journey of culture change. Jerry, I remember along the way that uh, you and your team took a trip to USAA. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think their CEO was on your board perhaps at the time, but uh, that was a company that was known for its culture. So if you could share some of what you learned there and what that plant, the seeds of that planted for you. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll share what led up to that trip to USAA and then, then the trip. So what led up, you know, it, as we entered uh, that great recession, I had been working on continuous improvement, thinking that was a tool to, help change the culture, but also our performance. But in, in my learning about continuous improvement, one of the core principles was, and this was a Japanese tutor I had, he said that the, the roots of continuous improvement are a deep respect for the dignity of people. And I didn't even know what he meant when he first talked to me about it. Uh, but I learned over time as I thought about it and talked to him that you know, continuous improvement really depends upon people giving you their energy and creativity, but they only give you their energy and creativity. They only give you their best when you stand for what's best for them. And I began to think, you know, that's right. And it's only fair. I can only ask for the best from my people if I'm willing to stand for the best for them. And in a financial crisis where they were all afraid, deathly afraid because the brothers and sisters were being laid off, uh, everything around them was shuddering they were afraid that we'd do the same. And I knew that if I did that, I'd be setting the table for the culture for the rest of my time as a CEO. And so the decision we made and the one that I said defined my career was to do the opposite. We actually went to our people and said, we're gonna make a bet on you. Now, the last lever we will pull at this company is to lay anybody off. But for us to be able to make good on that bet, we are gonna need you to come at this crisis with every ounce of creativity and energy that you can. And if we do that, uh, maybe we'll get through this. I can't promise it because this is big, but, but we have a chance. Well, in retrospect, uh, and this is leading to what you asked, Raj, I was dumbfounded by the experience. We, we had calculated that some $200 million had evaporated from our 
our uh, margin line sort of overnight. And wow. we had to recover that. And, you know, our people initially came and said, we got to lay 20% of our people off. It's the only way. And we didn't. And yet we came out way ahead of budget. And when I looked around it, ultimately, after not believing it, I literally didn't believe the numbers. I kept telling our controller, your financial close model's got a break in it. But when I finally accepted it and looked around, what I found was thousands of discretionary acts on behalf of the company that were gluing it back together and making it healthy. And that was what locked in for me a real belief that culture really is the most powerful tool available to a company because I was seeing it in action and I was learning what those academics couldn't teach me, which was uh, on the job experience of the reality of this. But a lot of what was driving people, frankly, then was fear. And that's understandable. Um, they were afraid that if they were laid off, they couldn't support their children. You know, their husband was laid off or their wife was laid off. It was down to that sort of thing. And, um, and we were tapping a lot of energy on behalf of the company, but also energy to resolve this fear that they felt. And so, Raj, when I went to USAA, it was at a point where we'd made it through the first year. And I was beginning to think this fear is going to evaporate. And it's, it's the, the sort of nexus of this ask of our people to give their best with fear had created this amazing result. But how do we continue that? And when I went down to USAA, I, I ran into our, our board member, Joe Robles, who was CEO at USAA. We were there to talk about customer service. But I went out and saw his people, and they were so passionate and energized. And obviously, they had created a positive culture that I went back to his office and asked him, Joe, how do you create that? And at first, he didn't know what I was asking. But I, I said, the energy, the passion, it's tangible. And he leaned back in his chair and said, Jerry, the first job of any leader and especially as CEO is to create a deep connection to purpose for the people. And if you can do that, it will pull them. That's your first job. And I realized that he was describing me to me, the step I needed to take from sort of a fear-based response to a aspiration and purpose-driven uh, pull on our culture. And it was, it was then in the aftermath of that rise that, really continued the, the journey for me. And I had a lot of learning uh, to do about how to make that happen. Uh, but that was one of those events you look back on in your career and say, I ran into the right person with just the right message at the right time for what I needed as a leader. Uh, I love it. I love it. And so say a little bit about what it was like working with your team. So I suppose that you had a pretty traditionally minded team and and I guess I'm thinking two things that I'd love you to address. One is when you said, okay, we're not going to lay anybody off. And everybody was saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you have no choice. You've got to lay off 20%. And, and how you managed that with, with an experienced executive team. And then two, what was the next step for them, bringing them along on the journey from fear to being more purpose-focused? Well, we had leaders on the team who were very analytical engineering types or yeah. financial types who they believed numbers and the numbers didn't add up. It wasn't rational. Um, you couldn't do the math of what all this discretionary energy would create. And so they came in not believing. And But but they jumped on board. I mean, this, this was our plan. So they were going to do their best to make it happen. They came out of the year challenged 
and, and open, I think, to a new way of thinking because they'd lived through it too. And they'd seen it and felt it. And then in early 2010, uh, I, I pulled my leadership team together, just a small group of about a dozen people. And we went offsite and I led uh, a discussion, really, a two-day discussion. But I started the discussion um, by saying, uh, you know, there's a prayer I often say with my kids. Uh, we are what we think and all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. And I said, I really think it's the thinking and the energy of this group that, that will define our future. And if we're clear on what we want and, and we imagine that future with strong energy, it will come into being. I believe that. So, so the question for us is, what do we want to create? And what do we want to be? It's in our hands now to shape this company in any way that we want to. Yeah. What do we want? And then what we did is uh, we sat down with each of them. And I said, Des- describe vividly what you want this company to look like. And they came, back with, they came back with descriptions that, that were wonderful. But then I asked them, go back and spend an hour telling me why you really care about that. What is it about you and your values? Because my belief is we really only care about things that align with the value system we have as a person. So tell me what it is about you as a person that makes those important to you. They came back and started to tell stories about their childhood and the way they'd grown up. Many of them had interestingly grown up in poverty. And this breakdown in in Michigan and in Detroit um, brought that back to them. And they wanted to help fix it. And they wanted to make it better for our people. Um, they were ashamed at times in their lives. I remember one of them came from Norway and he said, my family couldn't even afford skis. And I was just embarrassed of it all. He said, I, I, I want to, I don't want people to have to face those sorts of things. And so you were connecting to these strong feelings in them and connecting that then to what they wanted for the business. And in listening to them, I thought, okay, this will energize them. And so we aligned as a senior team on what we wanted to create at the company. Yeah. And the amazing thing was that in doing that, you know, five years down the road, the things that we described and wanted to make happen all came to be almost without fail. Now, it took a lot of work, took a lot yeah. of energy, um, but, but they did come to be. And um, so, and, and that was our expression of aspiration and, and purpose and passion, what we wanted to create. And then we needed to, you know, help create that in the in the business more broadly. So, Jerry, talk to us about the uh, purpose journey because you came back from the trip to USAA thinking about what should be our purpose. You know, you were kind of in survival mode for quite a while there. And what was the process that you used to uh, identify that purpose, articulate it? And then I remember the way that it was spread uh, in the company and there's some very emotional moments that came along with that. You know, when I was down visiting with... USAA and with Joe Robles, the CEO, um, he described uh, this connection to purpose and brought out videos that they used to communicate with their own people. They were emotional videos. And I, they showed them to us and we were brought to tears uh, by stories that about people and in a business that we had no connection to. And so you could see that what they were doing was tapping people's emotional well. And on the, on the plane ride home, uh, I remember talking with my leaders and saying, we run an incredibly important business. Everything in society depends on what we produce in a fundamental way. We ought to be able to create that connection to purpose. And so we went back and I spent time thinking about what, what is it really that, that we as a company 
stand for and um, worked on that. And then I, I sort of uh, spent time with my senior leaders, making sure that they were on board. Then I asked our communications team to put together a video like the ones I'd seen. And they did. And I can remember along the way, second guessing myself, thinking this is going to fall flat. My people are going to think it's hokey. You know, it won't work. Um, I showed it first to a room full of 200 leaders and sort of held my breath. And when the lights went back on, when that video stopped playing, there was a moment of silence. And then they erupted into a standing ovation. And people immediately began asking, can I take this out to my people? Can I, show, I want to show this to my people. And I realized we must have, we must have tapped into what, what USAA was talking about. And then they took it out to the field. And I began hearing stories coming back of power plant operating rooms where they dimmed the lights showed the video and turned the lights on and there were men in, you know, overhauls crying. And I would hear these stories and think these people have wanted for a long time to know that what they've spent their life's energy on is important and that it matters deeply and it touches them emotionally. And um, so it, it struck me that we've really tapped into something here. But of course that could have been temporary, right? That could have been a one-time event. So then the job was to continue uh, to communicate and to behave in a way that aligned with that purpose and to make feel make people understand that this really is what we're about. And as we focus time and energy on that, it it helped us to move from that fear-based response to an aspiration of purpose-based response, which pulled people's energy. And in the process, that employee engagement, which I said was always bottom 20%, actually went up to top 3% in Gallup's uh, worldwide database of companies. And the change in our people's demeanor, their energy, their happiness, just the way they looked and interacted with me was radically different. And uh, I learned over time that you can tangibly sense engagement. You can observe it the same way you observe other things, just by the energy and demeanor of your people. And it changed radically as we went through the journey, Raj, of connecting ourselves to purpose. And you can you uh, state what the purpose uh, uh, was articulated? How it was? What was the phrase? So the first phrase it, it came in three layers. The first phrase was "We serve with our energy." Now we're an energy company, but I was I was talking about that, but I was really talking about our energy as people. And the word "serve" was not about customer service, although it was about that too. It was really about. We're fundamentally at the service of other people in what we do. We're providing them with one of the core needs of human beings. That's our job. That's really what we're about. The, the two sublines were the we serve with our energy, the lifeblood of communities, which is lifeblood is the thing that sustains you and enables you to, to, to carry on. And we were trying to communicate to our people that without what we do, our community dies, literally. Uh, just like it does in a major blackout. So we're, we're critical. The lifeblood of communities and the engine of progress. And we, with that, we said that to, to move forward into new things, to have a vital and, and vibrant community, uh, we need our energy supplied in new and better ways. And so ultimately it got shortened to we serve with our energy. That became the tagline that, that we're about serving other people uh, with our energy as people and with the energy we produce as a product. And, and people are still used today, 15 years later. And um, people really identify with it. Ah, 
I love it. It's really inspiring. And, you know, I'd love you to connect the dots because I think that one of the discussions that comes up is, you know, you can make the emotional connection with a purpose. And then at some point there's a, we, and we need to make it relevant to our business. We've got to make it relevant to people um, in a tangible way in terms of the work they're doing. And now I, I think you hinted at it when you said when our, we, we started talking about this vision of a great business and we have our purpose. How did you connect that to the nuts and bolts of strategy and business planning? How did those pieces come together for you and your team? Well, a couple things. I think uh, you're right. Purpose, if described at high level, um, uh, eventually runs out of steam. And so what I found is that you need to communicate, communicate, communicate. But the communication needs to become more and more tangible to people where they do their work. So when I'm in at a power plant, even a coal-fired power plant, which people might say, oh, Jesus. That needs to go away. It's dirty. I would say to them, you in this facility have been about the business of making sure that our fellow citizens have secure secure supply. And you've been sort of the keepers of that flame. Now, it's going to change. We're going to move on to better ways. That's okay. Uh, but you've been about a really important service. So thank you. And you could make the connection to them doing something important. When you go out to line workers, you, you could equally make an, a connection about how on a daily basis, but especially in crisis, they were right on the front lines of helping people to piece their lives back together. Every part of the company can feel that way. You can talk to accountants that way. That, you, know, you, you help keep order and discipline and rigor around a business that's so important. And uh, so you had to find compelling ways to talk to people that made connection to the purpose in a way that made sense to them and was real. And what I found is they're hungry for it and they want to be connected to something important. They want, you know, I learned over time, people only give their energy to things that they believe in and love. And they will give it to your business if they believe that it's important. And if they don't believe it's important, they'll go through the motions and give you as much as they need to, to get by. And then they'll go get their real energy to other things that they actually believe in and love. And so my job was to, in a very concrete way, show them that this company's worthy and you should be proud of it. We also needed to behave in a way that they were proud of. We needed to be in the community standing for things that were important. We needed to demonstrate values within the company that, that they then said, actually mean it. Um, we are this that they're describing. It's not a bunch of talk. And as, as time went by and the just continued emphasis uh, on communication um, played out, uh, you, you saw that connection to purpose become more real. But the other thing is talking is not enough, obviously. It needs to be connected through actions. And they need to see the things that you're talking about coming through demonstrated in tangible things that you do within the workplace and in the community. And it's really those things that ultimately have them say, you know, they talk about these values. We raised an issue. Uh, they delivered in a way that's aligned with those values, I believe. Or they talk about these values. An issue came up in the community and they stood for it. I believe that they actually stand for these values. And it was that process over time that shifted people from probably at first thinking, well, this is interesting, but do they mean it? To over time believing, I actually do mean it because I see it demonstrated in behaviors. And 
I'm curious about that connection to the strategy of the business. So, and and then to the the business planning that you know you're in a business where you're looking out five or ten years in terms of some of the big capital investments you're making, etc. How did you find? How did you connect that to the strategy? You know, as a purpose-driven strategy, what 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 changed as you thought about that and did that planning? Well, um, what what I found over time is that you uh, business leaders need to have the courage of their convictions, and they need to have the courage of their convictions about the most important things in their business. So, an example, maybe the biggest, um, climate change for us. Uh, energy intersects climate change in a very direct way. I can remember in 2015 and 16, um, I was leading our industry's environment committee and where the CEOs would come together and work on environmental issues. And Obama's clean power plan was what was being worked that year. And oh boy, I put a lot of time and energy into that. And um, it was passed, you know, the EPA put it into regulation and then Trump was elected and a few months later, it was gone. And I remember saying to my wife, I think I just wasted a year of my life working on that. But then in 2017, all the talk of going backwards from an environmental perspective, that coal was going to regain the upper hand, um, began to be out there. And I got so many inbound questions on whether we were going to stay, step away from an agenda of improvement on the environmental front and addressing climate. So I once again called my leadership team together and asked, what do we believe in this issue? And the team fundamentally said, it's real and we're responsible. We have got to be in the middle of this. And as we, I said, all right, I, I agree with you that this is one of the foremost public policy issues of our time. And we're right in the middle of it. We've got to be, the, we've got to be at the heart of the solution. So what that led to was um, in the spring of that year, we came out with a public declaration that we were going to shut down all of our coal plants over time. And uh, at the time, we said uh, drive to an 80% reduction in carbon. That's now drive to net zero. And that, that declaration has been the most powerful pull on our company strategy of everything that we're dealing with. Our boardroom is full of the discussions about how we're going to make that real. It dominates our strategic discussion. but. It's also full of opportunity. It's it's for our sector really. Uh, reducing carbon is like the the greatest opportunity if we go about it right. Because ultimately, the solution to a lot of this is to electrify, and our job will be to be able to supply that electricity in a clean way to other segments. And we have to rework our entire capital infrastructure on the generation side to pull it off, which is what we're good at. So if we go about it in a smart way, it's tremendous opportunity. But I can remember people coming up to me after we made that declaration. I can remember a woman coming up to me with tears in her eyes saying, when, when the company made that statement, I broke down in tears uh, because I was so happy to see us stand for this. And I, I remember looking at her and thinking, well, if that's not tapping people's sense of purpose, I don't know what is. And of course, we had people in our power plants who were thinking, you're talking about shutting down the business that, that I'm part of. And we had to come in with another description of purpose. Look, we're going to handle the shutdown of this plant the same way we've described before. Nobody's getting laid off. We can see it coming. We'll put you into other parts of the company. You'll have good work. 
I said, don't worry about that. But this is just part of moving on. It's okay. Uh, it's, it's good. And that's the way our people have handled it. Um, I can remember going to a power plant about six months before it was going to be shut down to talk to the people thinking this could be an ugly discussion. Not at all. They were, you know, they, they'd absorbed it. They've dealt with it and it was, it was fine. So I think that um, purpose um, does get connected to strategy if in, in, way, in things like that. And that, that could be true, for example, in dealing with, with customer service uh, where everybody knows it's important, uh, but how do you really play it out and, yeah. and uh, so on and so forth. So I think you tangibly need to connect this sense that we serve people to things that, well, if we serve people, we need to stand for the environment. If we serve people, we actually need to do our customer service in a way that expresses that and so forth. Love it. Wow. Jerry, uh, as you know, uh, DTE was one of the featured stories in uh, the healing organization. And I do remember a flight when I was writing that chapter and I literally had tears. You know, and the guy sitting next to me is looking at me like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> There's no crying in business class, you know. You're not supposed to, but it was so moving to me. And I remember a particular moment, I think, that I was writing about, which is you had held true to your pledge not to lay anybody off. You engaged the company with this deep sense of purpose, gave everybody a feeling of, of meaning and dignity and, and the sense that there is a future. And then you had a town hall, I believe, at, at which at the end of which a woman came up to you and thanked you, first of all, right, for not laying her off. And she said her husband worked at General Motors on one of the car companies and had been laid off. And then if you could share that moment, because I do believe that was a turning point in your thinking and a turning outward, right, not just focusing inward on fixing the company, but really now looking at the community around you. Yeah, that's, that's right, Raj. And I remember that moment so clearly. It was in early 2010. So we'd come through 2009, which was the first year of the economic crisis. Um, we, we'd come through successfully. Uh, our community and our broader economy in the region were still in wreckage. Uh, so there was a sense in our company that we'd come through it, but that was not at all the case in our community. And I had a breakfast. I, I used to have breakfasts um, with about a dozen people from varying levels in the company just to hear what they, people were thinking and feeling. And uh, it was the woman waited around afterwards, sort of standing in the corner. So I could tell she wanted to talk. And after everyone else left, I walked up to her and we chatted for a bit. And then I, I asked her, was there something that you wanted to talk about? And she said, well, there was. And she said, first, I, I just wanted to say thank you for what you did last year. Uh, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she, she, she mentioned what you said, Ross. She said, we have two young children. My husband was laid off from his job in the auto industry. I was deathly afraid of what would happen to my family. If I was laid off too, we'd have no income with two young children. And when you said that the last lever the company will pull is to lay people off, it gave me a sense of hope that we as a family could find our way through this. And I was ready. And I was listening to her thinking, I tapped this woman's love for her children on behalf of the company. That's what was coursing through her. She went to work every day. I'm doing this for my kids. And I thought, there's no more powerful thing you can tap than that. But then she turned and said, look, I sense we're okay at DT. 
but our community is not. My brothers are both still laid off. Now the auto companies are so broken, they're in bankruptcy. Uh, our communities are going through, everything is broken around us. Isn't there something we can do as a company to help with that? And I looked at her and it was like a, a revelation. I thought, here's a woman who was consumed with a sense of concern for her family, who now senses, okay, I'm okay. Now I want to help other people. Now I want to make it better for the community broadly. And I thought, that's it. That's where our people's energy will go next. They will want to help the people around them. And uh, <laughs> I look back on it, it was like she led me to the next thing that I needed to stand for. And so I began to talk about DTE as a force for growth and prosperity. Those are sort of economic terms, but boy, we needed economic health and growth and prosperity at that time. And we, we began to talk about ourselves as being a, a force for growth and prosperity. Over time, it became a force for good as the crisis uh, abated. But people, people uh, just grabbed that and wanted to stand for it. And that began, became the next fighting call. And I used to say to them, there is no more powerful tool that you can stand for uh, to, to make this community better than our company. Make our company better. Everybody pays our bills. Give them relief. We're not viewed as a strong company. Michigan's companies are viewed as mediocre and broken. Be different. Create a great company. Break everybody's presuppositions about what exists in Michigan. Break their stereotypes. Make us one of the best companies in the industry. And people took these on as rallying cries because of the time that we were in. Uh, it was such an unusual time. And so they fought for that. And then we went from sort of that and melded it with that purpose uh, description, the purpose that USA event actually came the next year, uh, and, and, but it fit perfectly. Like we serve the people around us. We stand for our communities. And um, as, as those things got layered in, the engagement of our people went from low to high, high, and eventually to top 3%. And, um, in the process, everything became easier. I, I learned that when you've got your people's energy, it's like wind at your back. Um, and if you don't, it's like trying to sail into the wind. You, you'll, you may go somewhere, but it's hard and slow. And when you're working with the wind, you go fast and easily. And it was such a lesson for me as a leader because I'd grown up on the hard side of business. I was known as a strategy finance operations guy who'd come through engineering and business school and McKinsey and all of this. Well, uh, this was like a real life lesson in the power of culture. And this statement, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, easy to say, and, you know, say, oh, sounds good. And then you go back to being a hard side person. Um, but when you live through something like I did and, and have the learnings very directly, almost imposed on you in a way, um, it becomes very real and very tangible. And, so it was, I, I, I look back on the crisis as a real gift to me as a leader. Very cool. Very, I think, very cool. <laughs> I think that chapter is called The Power of Love uh, that describes this journey. And, and I think that also planted the seeds for ultimately you taking the lead to organize the business community uh, in Michigan, especially around Detroit, to actually take ownership to some degree of some of the biggest challenges. And, and the interesting thing about that is it was a business community in the lead, and then the mayor and other people from the government were along 
for that, right? But the leaders were really the business community taking on sectors like housing or education or or internships, et cetera. So if you could talk about that and how you rallied the business community, not just to be a bystander, but actually to take ownership. Yeah, well, as, as uh, my journey went on, um, there were still a lot of challenges in our city and in our region, our state. And I came to the belief that if we waited for government in the nonprofit sector, as important as they are, but if we waited for them to be the solutions to these issues, we were going to wait a very long time. In our country, there is just so much of the energy, creativity, and economic power uh, that's housed in the private sector. But unless the private sector unleashes its uh, capabilities and skills on the problems, I, I don't think they go away. And so I began to uh, reach out to the CEOs of some of the other largest corporations in the region. And we eventually pulled it together in a group that we didn't advertise a lot. We just call it the regional CEO group. And we'd get together on a regular basis to talk about the things that most needed uh, our help in, in the community. And I, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the members uh, of the CEO group was building a new arena in the city and had just been fined for not using Detroit employees. And he said, I just had to accept the fine. There was no way I could have used 50% Detroit employees on that construction job. They don't exist. And so we went out to the, to the uh, skilled trades union shops, and he was right. There was nobody from Detroit in the skilled trades. And then we began to ask, well, why is that? And we discovered that the skilled trades training, the career and technical schools had all broken down. They were just shells of what they used to be. And there was no training process to put young people into those trades. And so we as a group looked at each other and said, if anybody knows this, we do. And let's go about being the fix for this. And so we started raising money. We eventually raised over $50 million to, to refurbish and revitalize uh, the core technical schools in the, in the city to give them curricula and teachers and those... <laughs> The, the enrollments at the schools went up uh, fourfold uh, as that happened. And we now have a much stronger flow uh, out of those career and technical schools uh, into training. Um, I'll give you another one that was um, maybe more as a company, but we talked a lot in the community about returning citizens and uh, rec recidivism, how people come out of prison as a returning citizen and loop right back in. And we as a company, uh, asked, what can we do about this? And that led us to uh, setting up a line clearance training facility at a maximum security prison in Michigan. Now you may say, what? You want people in a maximum security prison to end up working as a tree trimmer at your company? Well, I have to tell you something. I visited the prison uh, the day that we dedicated that facility. And my interaction with those prisoners forever changed my perception of who it is uh, that we have locked away there. And I came away so inspired um, by the work that we were doing to help them that I, my commitment to it went up by interacting with those people. I can remember vividly one of the people saying to me, I asked him, how do you feel about this program? And he said, um, he said, look, let me tell you something about myself. He had, he had uh, been injured seriously and 
used opioids uh, for his injury and then fell into addiction and then turned to crime to feed his addiction. And he said, look, I, I know I really screwed up in my life. I'm ashamed of that. Um, my wife and children, I, I let them down. I'm ashamed of that. He said, I, I take ownership for all of that, but I want a second chance. I, I want to be able to work at something important. And mostly, I want my children to be proud of me, and I want to be able to do for them what a father should do. And I, I listened to this guy, and I thought, boy, if you want your preconceptions of who's in prison to be blown away, just talk to people like this. And um, so I, I came away really committed uh, to that effort. Now, we've We've had two classes come out. We're taking them on 15 at a time. So we've had 38 graduates and uh, yeah. 29 of the 30 are, are working in our company. It led us to found a alignment training uh, uh, effort right in the heart of Detroit as well, right in the city of Detroit, because we didn't have any Detroiters coming into our skilled trades either. And so this work in that CEO group, Raj, led to work by the group, but it also makes you reflect as a company, well, how are we? playing into this. And I see other companies doing it as well. So that's been a really um, encouraging uh, joint effort by the CEO group of a range of issues from uh, education to workforce development to economic development uh, and so on. I really love these stories. They're powerful. They're powerful. And you also illustrate something that I think, you know, Raj and I often talk about, which is the sacred trust role of a leader, that it's uh, when you're put in a role of leadership, it's, it's a sacred trust in a sense. And uh, you've demonstrated that really clearly. And I'm curious then, how did you then take the rest of the leaders in the organization? Was there something you did to begin to work on the mindset of your leaders, not just on your team, but at the next couple levels in the organization. Because I sometimes say, you know, purpose goes to die in middle management. You know, if you, Absolutely. If you, don't, if you don't get it through there, baby, you don't get it through. So um, yeah. I was curious, well, what did you do from a leadership development point of view to sort of begin to shift that mindset for a very traditional kind of business that's, you know, as you described, an engineering background, very hardcore. Well, what, what you've described, Tim, is something that, that I learned over time, that it, it really is all about mindset. You know, mm. as leaders, a lot of times we learn to, to work on actions or outcomes, but there's something that always precedes all of those, and that's the way you think. Mm. It's what's going on in your head, and your head is what keeps turning out the same actions and the same results, and until you change the way people think about things... They yeah. don't change their, their, the way they act. And um, I, I also learned uh, that what you said is true, that so much in companies like ours is driven by middle and frontline leaders. And inevitably, when we uh, found a problem, we would chase the problem, and it became a frontline leader problem or a mid-level leader problem. And it wasn't a problem in the sense of bad people, bad leader. Um, ultimately, it came back to us. Yeah. We, we didn't train these people. We didn't teach these people to do it in the way that we're asking them to. And uh, so what we learned is that um, we needed to do two things. One is that we needed to um, really understand with a lot of information where the, where the issues were in our company. And if you, if you want to, you can find the hotspots, for example, of culture breakdowns in your company by chasing them to business units 
and then inside business units. Yeah. And inevitably, when you chase it there, you'll find that there's something about the way people are being led that has led to the breakdown. And uh, so that then means that there's a real need for training and communication with your leaders. And so as, as we began to do that chasing, um, I began to, to believe that we needed a broad program to, to pull our leaders in. And we always started at the top and then worked down level by level to make sure that, that each level was on, on board. But we genuinely tra- uh, trained them in, in the mindset and approach that we wanted to bring to our people. And what I found is they were hungry for it. Nobody had ever taught them how to lead. Uh, just thrust into leadership positions and given a short introduction and then sort of cast off on their own. And they didn't want to disengage people. Uh, They didn't want to make people unhappy, but many of them were. And they didn't want to be ineffective either, but many of them were because they they didn't know how to go about it. So over time, you know, I began to say uh, to people, you're a leader. You don't lead machinery. You don't lead balance sheets. You lead people. So ultimately, to be a good leader, You've got to be good at, at engaging people and pulling their energy. Yes, you need to be good about, you know, with the skills and disciplines that, yeah. that, that, that you need to know. But first and foremost, every leader in this company needs to be good at leading people and pulling their energy. And if you're not good at that, well, then we'll give you help. And if you still can't make it, that's okay. We'll put you into an individual contributor role um, because you, maybe leading isn't for you. And as we talked about it that way, people, leaders in particular, realized they're deadly serious about this. I need to get good at this. And then as they dove in to get good at it, uh, I think most of them found that it made their work much more engaging because of the way their people reacted to them. And we found that 80 to 90 percent of the leaders could make the trip, probably closer to 90. There was a subset that just wasn't cut out for leadership. Yeah. And you know, the mindset we tried to bring to that was, that's okay. And it was our mistake to put you in a role you weren't suited for. So we'll put you back into a role that you are suited for. And um, it made a big difference. Uh, Jerry, I'd like to uh, learn a little bit uh, about your uh, upbringing, your family. I know you come from a pretty uh, uh, well-known family, the Andersons. I think there's a tremendous history there. Uh, I know and love your brother, Bob. Uh, and the work that he has done on the leadership development uh, side of the leadership circle profile and all the work he's doing now is at the next level of integral leadership. So talk a little bit about your your background and what you learned from your family and what planted the seeds uh, for you to become this kind of leader today. Well, I think like every person, my, my parents were a dominant influence in my life. And uh, if I were to talk about my father, my father grew up on the farm. Uh, and he brought many of the ethics uh, of, of farm life uh, into our family, hard work, um, connection to nature. Uh, and, and interestingly, both he and my mother were um, serious Christians. And I'd say the, the real ethic that came from that was service, that, that ultimately um, were about serving other people. And uh, my grandfather... Um, was the individual who started the company, the Andersons. And uh, boy, my grandfather was sort of the the American entrepreneurial story, if there ever was one. He kind of started from nothing and tried and failed and then tried again and succeeded through some very dire circumstances, including the death of his daughter right in the middle of 
deep depression on his own part, but he sort of fought through it all to create this thriving business. And I, I actually had an experience in 2008 uh, when my, my cousin asked me to join the board of our family business. It's a public company now. And in preparation for uh, joining the board, he sent me uh, the statement of principles that had been written by my grandfather way back when for the company. And I had seen it as a young person, but I hadn't seen it in years. And I sat down to read it um, one winter night and I walked out to my wife and you know, my grandfather's pictures on the front of this. And I said, this is such a strange experience. I'm reading the words of my long dead grandfather uh, coming out to me from decades past. And he connected himself and his principles and his values to what he wanted in his business so directly. And I found myself asking, have I really had the courage to do that myself? And I, the honest answer was no. I'd um, sort of gone about business in the way we're taught in business school. You do business. And most of my real values resided in my personal life. And yet here I saw my grandfather expressing a desire to connect his deepest values to the way he played out his business. And it forced me to think. And it was right on the cusp of the Great Recession. I didn't know that, but I was thinking about how do I connect my own values more deeply? I'm being challenged by my past to connect values deeply to my business. I haven't done that. How do I do that? And um, what, I, what I found over time, Raj, is that, it, that um, we're taught, I think, in business school to, to, to create a separation there. And it's really wrong. And our people are taught to create a separation, but they don't want it. They, they want their work life to be connected uh, to things they value and believe in. And so when we break it down for ourselves and have the courage to begin to speak about values that matter to us and values that matter to our people, it gives them permission to begin to create those connections. And it's, like I said, everybody wants it. It's just, it's almost in some companies, the unspeakable. Like, um, we can't talk about that. We don't do that here. But it's, it's just wrong. And it keeps us as corporations um, from standing up um, in a straightforward way for some of the most critical issues. Because if we really brought our values into the workplace, it would challenge us to think, well, if those are my values, how do I as a company uh, stand for addressing uh, critical issues that are right in front of us. And what I've learned is it doesn't have to be a sucker's choice. You know, is it this or is it that? You can address the most critical issues and be a thriving, successful, vibrant business in every hard side way, while also playing out um, these really important values that help society move forward. And it just, it makes playing the role of a, as a leader so much more deeply satisfying. And it makes the sense that our people have about being in the company so much more satisfying. Jerry, I know you, uh, you shared with me a couple of years ago, you and your family had kind of a near-death experience, right? In, uh, I think it was in Arizona or somewhere mm. in the South. And I wondered what kind of a, uh, an impact that had and how it cemented some of your uh, your beliefs and values even further if you don't mind sharing that no no it was uh, i was taking my family on vacation to uh, arizona uh, 
And we were going to go to the Grand Canyon and Sedona and hike and so forth. And um, five minutes out of the airport, um, I was broadsided by a commuter train. Um, I looked left and it was a very confusing intersection. And we were hit full force by this train and the vehicle just exploded. And I heard screams and wails from my three children in the backseat. And I wondered for an instant, has everything in my life just changed in an irretrievable way? I felt a sharp pain in my own side from the side impact. And um, I turned around and saw one of my children's just gasping for breath and the other one bleeding out of the face and one, you know, writhing in pain uh, from his arm. And um, thankfully, though, um, the, the injuries were, were not serious. And my wife, who was on the passenger side away from where it was hit, was fine. We all climbed out of the vehicle. Um, the ambulances arrived. Children were taken away. My wife went with them. As soon as they were all gone, I collapsed and fell down, and they took me away in an ambulance. Now, the interesting thing is the precursor to all of that, which is I walked into the uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and I was so impressed with their customer service that I, I, I asked, who's the manager here? And uh, they pointed the manager out, and, and I said, I, you are doing a wonderful job. Uh, so congratulations on that. And he said, well let me walk you out to your vehicle. And he walked me out to the car and I looked at the car and said, this isn't going to work. It's not big enough. We can't fit my children and our luggage in. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll give you this other vehicle uh, free, you know, up, upcharge, uh, no upcharge. And so I thanked him profusely and we all climbed in the vehicle. Well, it turned out that that was the top rated side impact vehicle on the market bar none. So he had just put us in maybe the one vehicle that could take the impact of a passenger train full force oh. and have my family come out okay. Wow. And then afterwards, I called him, and um, the only response was, how's your family? Uh, we've got to get you. You know, Are you okay? Are you taken care of? Do you need any help with this? Do you need I, I honestly thought his first concern was going to be his ruined vehicle. Not at all. And uh, the whole organization behaved that way. And I came back to my company, first of all, telling the story, and secondly, saying, if we want to serve people well, behave the way enterprise did to me at a moment of crisis for my family. So when you see somebody in the community in crisis, behave that way. Uh, take it on yourself. Make it right for them. It was, a, it was a pretty powerful lesson in how to serve other people in business. But it also left me with just a deep sense of thankfulness that um, I'd come through this okay, that I'd had something that could have been such a life-altering experience and it hadn't been. And it left me with a, a sense of gratitude that was tangible for a long time. And it was sort of worn off now. I can sense that if I go back to that experience, but it took a long time to wear off. Wow. Jerry, thank you for what has been both a very inspiring, but also a very practical walk through this journey and that's a beautiful combination and really really have enjoyed and appreciated your presence with us today so thank you so much well i, I appreciate your saying that uh, i enjoyed it and um, i'll just say that i i love the work that you two are doing it's incredibly important uh, anytime you can recruit another leader to um, play the sorts of roles you're asking them to good for you because it's so important for the world. And so I'm happy to help in any way I can and really enjoyed this.
Well, thank you. Thank you. I know. I sense that there's still another chapter that you've got a bigger impact yet uh, to make on the world with everything that you have learned and, and who you are and what you stand for. So I look forward to that uh, as, as we go forward, Cherry. Thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate that, Raj. And thank you to our listeners. And on whatever platform you're listening, if you enjoyed it today, please feel free to hit the subscribe button. If you have some thoughts or comments that you'd like to leave for Raj and I, please go over to the consciouscapitalists.com and you'll see there's a box on that page where you can leave us a message. And thank you very much to our producers, Tech Sound, to Max and Mars who helped make this happen. And Raj, do you want to add something on that? Yes, and also Technological de Monterey, where I'm now a professor, and we have the Conscious Enterprise Center there. So I'm grateful for their support uh, as well for hosting this podcast. Mm-hmm.